If you have your Bible with you, I invite you to open up to the book of 2 Samuel. Today we're going to continue our study going verse by verse through this book of the Bible. 2 Samuel chapter 17. Today we're going to pick up in verse 24 where we left off. And let me remind us again, this is God's word. And we should hear it and receive it as such. 2 Samuel chapter 17, beginning in verse 24. Then David came to Mahanaim, and Absalom crossed the Jordan with all the men of Israel. Now Absalom had set Amasa over the army instead of Joab. Amasa was the son of a man named Ithra, the Ishmaelite, who had married Abigail, the daughter of Naash, sister of Zeruiah, Joab's mother. And Israel and Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead. When David came to Mahanaim, Shobi, the son of Nahash, from Rabbah of the Ammonites, and Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar, and Barzillai, or I, excuse me, Barzillai, Barzillai, wow, the Gileadite from Rojalim, brought beds, basins, and earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, and lentils, honey, and curds, and sheep, and cheese from the herd, for David and the people with him to eat. For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one third under the command of Joab, one third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and one third under the command of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will also go out with you. But the men said, you shall not go out. For if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they won't care about us. But you're worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it's better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all of the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittite, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel. And the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David. And the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak and was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. 
And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in the oak. Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing the command, for in our hearing the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there's nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet and the troops came back from pursuing Israel for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and they threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, every one of them, to his house, his home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that's in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name, and it is called Absalom's Monument to this day. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning seeking your face, seeking your favor, seeking that you would speak to us words that make sense of the chaos around us and the chaos in us. Father, we ask that you would lead us to see you in this passage, to see you at work in David's life, in the life of Israel that we too would have assurance that you are at work in our life as well. Father, we come loyal to you. We come and sing praises to you. We come and offer prayers to you. We come to glory in your glory. So come and meet with your people. Come and bless us. Come and protect us, guard us, guide us, love us. Bring comfort to the weary and tired. Bring strength and renewal. Bring joyous celebration that at the end of all things, you win and we in you. So come and meet with your people, we ask in the name of Jesus. And all God's people agree. Amen. Amen. To whom are you loyal? Are you loyal to family? Some family, not all? Are you loyal to friends? Friends from your youth? Friends from your present? To whom are you loyal? Are there leaders who have led you so well that you are loyal to them? Are there partners in your life, people that you live and work with alongside them that you Find yourself having a camaraderie and a friendship born out of it? 
that would lead you to be loyal to them? It is easy in this stage of 2 Samuel to study and find literally under almost any rock enemies of David. Enemies and traitors, rebels and insurrectionists. David seems bombarded from almost all sides by betrayal. But let us for a moment spend time where the author leads us to spend our time. David has enemies. Yes, they abound. But he also has friends. He has supporters. Some of old and some hard fought battling alongside him for Israel's good for decades. Some much more recent, like Ittai. But they all are loyal to David. There's elements of friendship and kinship. But also there's a submission that David's the rightful king in Israel. And that any usurper, no matter whose lineage he's found in, they will serve And be loyal to Yahweh's anointed and and no other. As we come today and we see sort of the end of this chapter 17, we should see three things. The author is leading us to spend a moment, a breath if you will, on who and on what and on why. If you do connect with me, which is our ministry to uh, third grade through high school, but specifically with me, I spend the time with the middle schoolers and the high schoolers, and they get tired of me asking the same questions once a month when we're together. But also, I think there's a love of learning how to observe the text, How do we observe what is taking place in God's word? And we often use simple questions, single word questions like who and what and where that we might understand a setting or a person or who are the characters in this story and how are we to relate to them? And then only when they have good observation questions are they permitted to ask questions a little bit more complicated like why? Or a complex how, which is kind of a why. Anyway, as we come to the text, we are well served this morning to ask who and what and why. It's easy to get entangled in the textual wares. Scholars for years and years and years have been battling out exactly which field this battle took place in, which forest, what was the agriculture like, why was it so harsh, why was it so difficult? And I mean, it's not that those questions are wrong or unimportant, it's just not where the author spends his time. It's not a wasted time to study and ask, but let us let primary be primary and secondary be secondary. If you focus on secondary things at the expense of primary things, you lose out on both, do you not? 
So David is coming and preparing for battle. He comes to Mahanaim, and Absalom has already crossed the Jordan. This battle will take place to the east of the Jordan, which is important because the help for David will actually come in part from outside Israel. They're going to be representatives of kingdoms that David has fought against for years who come in this time loyal to him. It's a wonderful and challenging and humbling thought that some of your greatest supporters might not be in your daily thinking. That you get help from unexpected places. Has that been true in your life? I think all of us, if we live long enough, know what it's like to have somebody we think should support us fail to do so. You might not call it betrayal. Sometimes it rises to the level of a betrayal. But I think all of us know the sorrow of not being supported at a time or by people that we think should be loyal to us. Have I not learned your, earned your loyalty? I think that's a question most of us have asked at some point in our lives, be it of family or friends or coworkers, folks in our neighborhood or the center point of where we put our time and our effort. So who is here? Who comes to care and support David? We see this in verse 27. David comes to Mahanaim and Shobi, the son of Nahash from Rabbah, of who? The Ammonites. Are the Ammonites and the Israelites often on good terms? They, they literally have blood feuds, a many. But David was kind to the Ammonites. David welcomed and saddened, was saddened by the death of their king at one point, yes? So here, Shobi, who's presumably the brother of the one who was originally raised to power in, uh, for the Ammonites, he comes, and he comes to support David. We also see Machir, the son of Amiel from Lodabar. This is a man who at one time was very loyal to King Saul. And in the aftermath of King Saul's destruction, he was the one we find in 2 Samuel 9, he was the one who kept housed and protected Mephibosheth before David welcomed him into the palace. So here is Machir, who should be loyal to the enemies of David because David could be understood by some misunderstanding the moment, thinking that David stole Saul's throne. But his loyalty is to the true king in Israel. And then we also see Barzillai, who apparently, we will find out later, is over 80 years old. That's an awesome thing, right? For, an energy, for a general in their day, no modern health care, no modern medicine at all. And he's from Rogelim. One of the commentators referred to him as the octogenarian. Isn't that awesome? 
He's 80 years old or more. But these are the who. A pagan, a former enemy, and a really old guy. And they're going to come not just out of the proverbial woodwork. They're literally going to come from all directions bringing aid and support to David. This is the what. The what is found in verses 28 and 29. What did these men bring? Well, they brought beds and basins, earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, lentils, honey, curds, sheep, cheese from the herd. Wow. You have thousands of people in self-exile, many of whom are about to be charged with fighting a war, battling their kin in civil war on an empty belly. Here's the provision of God for the people of God. The food that they need, the the water and jars and jugs and basins. How many of you have failed to do the dishes in your home for three consecutive days? How big is the pile of basins and vessels for your scrub, right? Like it's, it feels like it's to the ceiling. Covers the counter, depending on how big your counters are, maybe. Multiply that by how many households? Multiply the need and use of all of those materials and things, and then find yourself on the edge of a forest in the wilderness with no running water. Tell me how important what these men brought was to the success of what was to come. So we have some who, we have some what, and then we get the why. The why is found in 29, second half. David and the people with him needed to eat. Why? Because the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. Now before we run in the metaphors available to us in these words... Let us actually remember the physical, literal realities first. Have you ever been thirsty? I don't mean slightly parched, hoping for afternoon tea. I don't mean the kind of thirsty you are in the morning where you need your wake-up fuel found in a cup of coffee. I mean like you ran a marathon without water. Have you ever been that thirsty, days without water? Have you ever found yourself camping in a situation where the fresh water has run out? Mark and Katie are like, "Uh uh-huh. Absolutely. How many of us have learned to carry a water bottle with us most of where we go? How privileged are we? For my kids, it's not just about the water bottle, it's also about the stickers they put on the water bottle. As a parent, it's about the liquid and the, wait for it, hydration, right? 
How important is water to your life? We carry water even though literally every building we walk into has running water. Have you ever walked into a building in the last, I don't know, five years and there was no running water in the whole building? How many faucets are available to us in this small church? And we carry water with us. How thirsty. In case you didn't know, we have a Dollar General next door. So if you want junk food, it abounds and it's cheap. It's probably stale, but it's cheap. You don't have to go a thousand feet from where we are to put enough calories in your body to make it a day. Can we really say we understand this moment for them? Now, I've woken up on Thanksgiving morning and decided not to eat breakfast so that there's more room for lunch. And I've been hungry when my dad was saying the Thanksgiving prayer. Like, all right, dad, speed it up. I'm hungry. This is how you guys feel at 1130 every Sunday. I get it. <laughs> Do we really know what it is to be hungry and thirsty? That's the why. The why is fixated on their need. And God meeting their need in his care for them. So then we move on. We move on and ask the question that should be gripping us as this whole ordeal happens. Absalom schmoozes his way into a kingdom. He's kissed so many babies, his lips are chapped to get to the position that he's in. How does this end? How does civil war cease? How does this end? It's a question we should grapple with. When we willingly enter in to confrontation and difficulty, do you know what you want as an outcome? One of the things I very much appreciate about our denomination is that over and over and over, the Book of Church Order talks to us about reconciliation as the end goal of discipline. The goal is not to shame somebody into conformity. It's to win them back in fellowship. When we think about what it means to confront our children with their disobedience, should we not think about something greater than just, can you stop giving me headaches? Isn't it unto something greater like their heart and their life? And growing up so that they can leave your home and run a household of their own? How does this end? Would that we spent more time contemplating what the outcome should look like before we begin. Especially in the messy world of relationships. How does this end? David turned as enemy to Israel, their great covenant king, 
self-exiled in shame because of the treachery of a rebellion that comes against him. Led by whom? His own son. His own son that he has shown mercy to, probably in ways he shouldn't have. Some of what we are seeing now is absolute judgment and consequence for disobedience. But how does this end? David musters the soldiers that he has. And he sets over them. Remember, he is building a military hierarchy in the moment. This is not a well-trained army. This is not a well-organized army. It's the day of the battle. You are over you and you are over all of them. And, and, and every third guy go in a different direction. A, B, C, go to group A. Like, what are we doing? And what we are told is that he sets three men as generals over all of the troops that he has. He sends them out, a third under Joab, a third under Abishai. Both of them are known entities to David. Both of them are hardened, brilliant warriors for Israel. And Ittai? Ittai gets a third? A third, not major, this guy's general? David, you've known him for a minute he is so irrelevant to your military strategy that before he became loyal to you, you released him from the covenant he had just sworn to you days, weeks, months earlier. But Ittai wanted to be loyal to Israel's king, Yahweh's anointed. And here is Ittai proving himself in some way to David that he set over a third of the troops. And the king gives orders to them. First by saying, I will lead the charge. Never been a soldier. My family's not known for military prowess or history. We tend to be thinkers in my family, much more than doers. Soldiers, by God's grace and design, are often doers. They're action-oriented. They see a hill and they're told to take it, so they do. There's a discipline there that eludes me in my own life. But what does it mean to a military soldier, an airman, a Navy sailor, Marine, that his general has no interest in the safety of a tent surrounded by bodyguards. That the general would mount up on a horse or a donkey and ride into battle alongside them. How many times in the epic movies of our day have you seen the screen filled with a horde of troops all charging together and there's one idiot like 10 feet in front of them, sword high. 
that idiot is usually considered an honorable, great man. Yes? How many of you would want to follow someone who puts their own neck in the hardest, most dangerous places as he asks you to do the same? But David... David wants to lead the charge. He wants to be out on the battlefield in cannon range. He wants to charge the troops alongside them. Where does David belong as king? Not where is his heart, not where is his experience, but in his office, where does he belong? Not in jeopardy. Not to the same degree, not in the same way. And so here are the men who love David, are loyal to David. Many of them don't know friendship with David. This is not 10,000 people that are David's best friends that will charge into this battle. And they cry out, no. No, David, no. We are replaceable in a way that you aren't. Do you see that that's their argument? Their argument is not, it's safer for you to go and we'll be better protected. It's you are worth 10,000 soldiers. You can assemble those who will relieve us You can build a second wave to come. None of us can do that. That is your job as king. Do you hear them say, no. The men say, verse 3, you shall not go out. Wait, who's the king? How did they all of a sudden get kind of uppity? Right? Yes, you're the king. We love you. God picked you. You're our king. Everybody else is an insurrectionist and a traitor, and we're going to take them down in battle today, and you can't. (laughs) David doesn't usually take can't very well. How'd it work out for Goliath? As a boy, David doesn't take can't very well. You shall not go out. What's their rationale? For if we flee... They don't care about us. If half of us die, they don't care about us. You are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better. For whom? Everyone. It's better for David. It's better for them. It's better for their campaign, their purpose. It's better that you send us help from the city. Raise up more troops, David. That's your job here today. So the king says to them, the defiant words, uh, whatever seems best to you guys, I'll do. (laughs) Mighty king. I mean, okay. Whatever you guys want. Take a vote. All in favor. All right, I'll go. One of the things you will see in this chapter is an unfamiliar passivity. There's an unfamiliar passivity. David is a doer. 
He's a thinker. He outwits. He outplays. He outconquers. He's as good with his brain as he is with his sword. He's as good with his sword as he is with his brain. Yeah, got whatever you guys want. That's a bold strategy. Command by public will? How does that work? Very poorly often. The mob is just about always wrong. Whatever seems best to you guys. Why is David passive here? Uh, You lead a third and you lead a third and you lead a third. Good luck, guys. I think there is a tiny part of David's heart that wants to die on the battlefield. Why? It's his son. It's his son. How do I know, the reader, that David is thinking about his son? Not the enemy, not the traitor, not the treacherous one. But what's the command that he gives? He's so passive. All right, guys, whatever you guys want me to do. If that's what you want, that's fine. Here's my one command. Win. How many times are we used to the king or the general or whatever riling up the troops for God and glory? Go. David's like, can, can you have mercy on the king? Can you? That's my son. Can y'all go easy on him? Starts talking about how young he is. He's just a young man. I mean, he's old enough to have tricked, I don't know, all the nobles in your kingdom. Deal gently. How many people are going to shed blood that day? And why? Whose fault is this? Who did this? Didn't Absalom do it more than everybody else of all the bloodshed that should be offered this day in that forest? How much of it should belong to Absalom? Every drop in his body should be poured out. You guys be gentle with my son. He's just young and stupid. This young, stupid son who killed one of your other children. This young, stupid son who spent four years plotting to take your throne in defiance of your anointing. In defiance of your covenant with God who picked you. In defiance of the kingdom of Israel that God has made. And spoiler alert, is still with us today. Go gentle on him. Don't kill him. David knows what it is to have the death of a child, yes? And it changes a man. It does. Deal gently for my sake. By my name, deal gently with the young man Absalom. And everybody heard it. Everybody heard him rile them up for victory. 
can you just kind of win the battle and then like we'll capture him and then we'll like, you know, I'll put him in timeout. It's fine. The army goes out into the battlefield. They're fighting their brothers, their sisters. This is civil war and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel, watch how interested in the battle the author is. Are you ready? And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David and the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. Wow, what an epic movie. Right? Like, like how do we know what's important to a text? Isn't volume one of the ways that we measure it? Ink spent, space taken up. This is, the t- this is like verses six through eight. The whole story has been building to this clash for chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter. And you get three verses of the whole fight. And then the author takes us and dives us right into Absalom. And Absalom's end takes verses 9 through 18. The ink, the amount of space that the author uses on a subject is most often a way of determining their interest. It's part of why they're writing. Was ink easy to come by? Parchment easy to preserve? Or did they tighten every word that they could? So how does this unfold? Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. I love the word happened in Samuel. How much have we been talking about sovereignty and providence in the last month? It just so happens that Absalom is nowhere to be found on the battlefield. He's using Hushai's point that if you want to kill the king, he's probably hidden. He's not going to be easily found. Remember? (laughs) He's using Hushai's strategy instead of Ahithophel's. Again, Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak. And his head was caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. Okay, this is a totally true story. Are you ready? I'm a kid. I'm about 10 years old. My friend David Quattrini, who lived down the street, same age as me, we actually had the same birthday, just got for his birthday a three-speed BMX bike, right? It even had the little pegs in the rear wheel so you could ride together. You remember this? None of that basket in the front. We had pegs. (laughs) Please don't hit a speed bump when you're in the pegs. Yeah, I have scars. It's okay. I'm riding his bike. This is like he's had it like two, three days. And I have no idea how to shift the gears. There's no manual given to me for this. So I jump on his bike and I'm flying as fast as I can. 
and I try to hold, you know, do that whole change gears thing, and I hit the little button. It's just like a little valve. It looks sort of like what a bell would ding with, and you push the little valve, and the chain is supposed to jump the track up to the next one, right? Oh, no. I'm going full speed. I mean, like, full 10-year-old speed. I am booking it. And I looked down, and the chain fell off in my little, you know, gear switch, so I'm riding full speed, balancing fine, and I'm trying to figure out what happened to the chain. Nothing could go wrong here. Mailboxes in my neighborhood were all out at the street. And all of them have the little knob. You know what I'm talking about? You have one that you push against and one you pull down with. Some of you know where this is headed. And head is the operative word. <laughs> so there I am. I'm riding full speed. I'm looking absolutely nowhere near where I'm going. And I have drifted towards my own mailbox. I was impaled by my own mailbox. And I'm riding, and I'm riding, and I go right under, at, through my mailbox. And I literally catch my scalp. You can see the scar after church today. I catch my scalp and I swing. And I kid you not, my mom can attest to this. The bike kept going. <laughs> and my friends were not loyal to me in this moment. David Quattrini ran after his precious bike so that it wouldn't get scratched up on the fall that was impending. But for my take, that fall was never coming. I was going so fast, that thing was going to end up in a lake before it fell over. For whatever reason, my blessed poor mother, whom you should give flowers and candy too often, saw me in that moment swinging from my scalp before my scalp gave way and I fell to the ground, and I won't bother you with the rest. But I kid you not, the first time I ever read this story, I was like, I'm Absalom! I don't want to be Absalom! I've ridden my mule and had it keep going as I'm caught in the branches of my mailbox. I hope that helps you understand this moment. <laughs> Seriously, send flowers to my mom. My, my dad used to say I had more stitches growing up than a baseball. So I counted the number of stitches on a baseball. He was right. <laughs> Absalom is not in the battle. Absalom is far from the battle. And he gets caught, literally and pretty much figuratively as well, in the branches of the tree that wiped him out, the mule keeps going, and he's suspended there between heaven and earth. He's not in the sky, but he's not, not in the sky, and he's not on the ground, that's what we're told. And then somebody finds him. One of the soldiers, under the command of Joab, sees Absalom hanging in the oak. And Joab is like, awesome, he's dead. And the guy's like, are you insane? We heard David say, gentle, we are not going to kill 
the king's son. Because there's no way that word doesn't get out. And Joab's like literally, apparently WWF had its ancestry. Because the guy's like, I would have given you 10 silver coins and a belt. <laughs> right? Like, who, this is a championship. I killed the other king. That's a heck of a championship belt. I don't know what class that puts you in. But you can imagine it. I'd have given you a belt. And the guy's clear. I don't care if you had a really big championship belt and a thousand coins. Not for a thousand coins. How many coins did it take for Judas to betray Jesus? 30. This guy's like, not for a thousand. The traitorous usurper is caught in the bushes. Not for a thousand. And then Joab basically says, this is not the primary thing right now. Let's go kill him. I'm not talking about this with you anymore. As a matter of fact, get out of the way. Me and my bodyguards, my armor bearers, the youth who are with me, we'll go do what you should have done when you caught him in the tree. You want to talk providence? Hello? So he goes. I'm not going to waste time like this with you. He took three javelins. Don't think Olympics. Think dartboard. These are not javelins. These are javelins. These are darts. So he takes three darts in his hand, and he thrusts them into the heart of Absalom while he's still alive in the tree. And 10 young men, Joab's armor bearers, surround Absalom, strike him, and kill him. And then Joab blows the trumpet. How does this end? With trumpet blast. How does this end? With trumpets in the air, letting everyone know the battle is over. It's done. No more war, no more bloodshed, no more usurpers. It's over. The civil war concludes at the sound of a trumpet. And the troops stop from pursuing Israel. Well, how did they win? What was the strategy? The author has no interest. In fact, he assumes so much that David's servants win, that they're the ones pursuing Israel. So then what does Joab do with Absalom? What do we do with traitors? What does any kingdom do with traitors? Public execution, often hanging. This is true biblically as well. Absalom had spent his lifetime building a statue to himself in the valley. Arrogance, right? What's Absalom's chief vice? His own ego, his pride. He spent a lifetime putting stones together that his name would live on because apparently he has no sons. 
This is his mindset in verse 18. I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. And he called that pillar after his own name. It's called Absalom's hand or Absalom's monument to this day. Absalom literally built his own grave in his own arrogance and ego. Because how does he end in verse 17? They took Absalom, they throw him into a great pit in the forest, and they raise over him a very great heap of stones. In other words, they made a very piteous of pits for him to be thrown into and buried under an avalanche of rocks that he himself had assembled called Absalom's hand. This is very literal. But there's also something historical that we don't know that's attached to this that the author is referencing. If you could bring up the slide for us on Joshua 8.29. In Joshua 8.29, long before this moment, the enemy was raised over the body, had a great heap of stones over it. They built a memorial to rebellion in Joshua's day. This is referenced again in 1027. I'm out of time, but that's the idea. The idea here is that the traitor against God gets buried under a mountain of stone as a consequence for his disobedience. On that day, Absalom ran out of babies to kiss. He ran out of conversations he could manipulate. He was caught physically, and that led to his actual demise. So why are we stopping now? We're going to see David's response to this news next time. But I need us to sit in the somber truth that the enemies of God die under the curse of God and are buried. And this history is tied not just to opposing kings, but actually there was an Israelite in Joshua's day named Achan. And he took the plunder that didn't belong to him and he brought it into the encampment against God's design. And he was said to be swallowed up by the earth. That's why this pile of rocks is so real and continues culturally. You deserve the death of Achan. And you're to be buried under the mountain of stone, engraved by the earth so deep as you belong. The enemies of God die under the curse of God. Listen to Psalm 94, verses 12 through 15. The focus is 13. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Yahweh, and whom you teach out of your law to give him rest from days of trouble until when? Until when? 
Let's do it all together. Until a pit is dug for the wicked. Why is that hopeful to David's song pen? Why is David's heart tied into that God will be with us, he will protect us, he will preserve us, and then one day the wicked end up buried under a pile of rocks, swallowed by the earth in a pit? Why is that good news for us? It does two things. It does two things for us. One, it reminds us that we have the duty to obey God, to trust him, to believe in his providential reign over us, to be with us in all the circumstances of life, and there is a forever promise that this ends. This conflict, this civil war in the angelic realm and in the physical realm, it has an end date. And the enemies of God will be swallowed up in the grave. And the people of God will not be found under rock, but in rock, united to the rock. Are you with me? Do you hear this? The enemies of God are destroyed. The people of God are victorious, united to the one who suffered in their stead. Are we not born traitors? Anyone not a traitor in this room? Anyone never usurping God, his control, his design, his plan for your life? Isn't there ever a time where you rebel against him, deny him? fail to obey him? Aren't we guilty? Yes? Aren't we set free from that guilt? It's a somber truth that the enemies of God perish. It is a joyous truth that the people of God are vindicated and that at the sound of a trumpet blast, all the violence stops, all the suffering ends, all the sorrow complete. And we end in praise. Amen? Let us continue that praise, inviting the worship team to come forward. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we see that the wicked are under your curse. We remember and understand that rebellion against you is traitorous. Father, we know that this is a vital truth all the same, that just as Absalom died, cursed and condemned, so will all the wicked for their rebellion against you, against your king and kingdom, and against your people. Father, may we trust you, love you, live in you, now and forever. May we know the power of your goodness at work in our lives that we would endure, that we would stand true, and that we would accomplish your purposes. For we are your workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works that you prepared in advance that we should walk out 
And all God's people agreed.